You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about HPV. Joining me is Dr. Aletha Akers, who's in the Division of Adolescent Medicine at CHOP and the Policy Lab. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Before we get started, I know you do a lot of work within HPV, so let's talk a little bit about your disclosures. Sure. Um, So I am on the HPV Advisory Board um, for Merck. Um, I also participate in advisory boards for Myelin Pharmaceuticals as well as uh, Medicines 360. So I've been seeing a lot more about HPV in the news lately. I know there are a lot of different campaigns about getting HPV vaccinations increased. So how common is HPV that I'm hearing about it all the time? Yes. So how common is HPV? HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection in the United States. Um, It's far more common than the uh, seven other sexually transmitted infections that the CDC commonly tracks. About 80% of people will become infected with HPV during their lifetimes. And if you look at adolescent and young adult patients who were the individuals most cared for in our pediatric primary care practices, it's estimated that about one in four um, will have HPV um, if they were to all be screened for it. So it's very common in general, and it's also very common in our patients. That's 80% in their, in their lifetime is a lot. It is so a lot. Now I know why we're talking about it. So HPV is sexually transmitted, but do you have to have symptoms such as warts to transmit the virus, or could people be getting HPV from somebody who seems asymptomatic? So if someone doesn't have symptoms, how likely are they to have the disease? It's very likely. So most infections are actually asymptomatic. There are actually two different Um, sort of types of clinical features that we see with HPV infection. Genital warts are generally caused by infection with low-risk HPV types. Abnormal pap smears are commonly seen in individuals who have high-risk types, but the vast majority of people who have either a low-risk or high-risk type will have no symptoms at all. Mm -hmm. So they're still able to transmit it to other sexual partners without symptoms. Absolutely. So you don't have to have symptoms in order to transmit the disease. And we know, as you just stated, that HPV can cause cervical cancer and genital warts, but how commonly does it get to that point where your your patients with HPV end up having cancer? So that's a great question. How common is it that people may get the conditions that we may worry about with these infections? Unfortunately, it's really hard to answer that because HPV can't be grown in a culture, and there's a lot of limitations to the way in which we screen for it. However, what we do know for individuals who are infected with the low-risk types, it's highly unlikely that they'll have symptoms, um, but we also know that in the general population, genital warts are fairly common, particularly in young people. With regards uh, to um, HPV infection that can cause cervical cancers, What we know is that the vast majority of people who acquire HPV 
their body will clear it on its own. So very few people will go on to develop cervical cancer. Unfortunately, we don't have great ways to predict who may go on to develop cervical cancer, which is why we screen for it regularly in women. So you mentioned screening regularly for it. So who are you screening for HPV? Yes. So the national guidelines for screening for cervical cancer um, recommend screening start at age 21. No screening is recommended below that age, with the exception of individuals who may be infected with HIV, where it's recommended by some expert guidelines that they start screening at, during the same year that they become sexually active. Otherwise, screening starts at age 21, and the screening is every three years. Once an individual turns age 30, you can space out that screening to every five years. So if a patient has an abnormal pap test due to their high-risk HPV, they may need a procedure such as a colposcopy or a LEAP or some other procedure. So what are the risks of those in terms of removing those precancer cells from the cervix and then later on trying to have uh, children or get pregnant? Yes. So many individuals who have an abnormal um, pap smear may need to go on to have an additional um, procedure. However, most individuals who have a procedure actually will have a biopsy. Mm -hmm. So very small portions of the cervix um, will be taken. There's no increased risk of problems with either fertility or um, with preterm labor, preterm delivery for individuals who just have the small biopsies. In the instance of a leap um, or cone biopsies where a larger portion of the cervix may be taken, the risks go up slightly. However, if people have to have multiple of the loop excisions or cone biopsies, they're much more likely to have um, difficulty um, with cervical incompetence during um, pregnancy. Cryotherapy used to be done a lot more decades ago, but it's generally not the recommended form of treatment anymore. What's recommended is excision, so with those small biopsies. But the data that we have from when it was more common shows that there's not an increased risk of cervical incompetency or preterm delivery um, with cryotherapy. So since we've been talking about how common it is, and certainly it can have some bad outcomes in terms of cervical cancer, we would like to have our patients avoid getting HPV. So how can they avoid this? The HPV vaccine is currently the, the best method for individuals who are sexually active um, or who plan to become sexually active to avoid getting an HPV infection. And we talk about condoms for preventing many sexually transmitted diseases. So are condoms good for preventing HPV as well? Are condoms good for preventing HPV? That's a great question. One of the challenges with the HPV virus is that it can be transmitted just with skin-to-skin -skin contact. And because condoms generally don't cover the entire genital area, it is certainly possible for an individual to pick up the HPV virus even if they use a condom. But that doesn't mean that people shouldn't abandon condom use. As you mentioned, condoms are great for preventing many different sexually transmitted infections, and they're more than 60% effective for preventing HPV. So they certainly have benefit, um, but condoms plus the HPV vaccine is really what we should be promoting in our patients. Great. So we're going to keep encouraging condom use for many reasons, but then also do the HPV vaccine. So who should we be offering this to? Yes. So national guidelines recommend that the HPV vaccine um, be given to individuals between the ages of 9 and 26, 
but that they can be vaccinated up to the age of 45. Okay. It's recommended for young people between the ages of 11 and 12. Luckily, I'm not vaccinating or seeing 45-year-olds, but it is <laughs> nice for us to be able to tell our patients who are graduating from our practice that if they weren't able to finish their HPV vaccine series, that they still have time to go get that from their adult provider Absolutely. or their, their GYN. Absolutely. So since we've started giving the HPV vaccine, have we seen any changes in the rates of cervical cancer? That's a great question. We have seen changes in the rates of cervical cancer um, worldwide, particularly in countries that have had really national campaigns where they have tried to immunize the vast majority um, of their um, population of youth. Um, in the U.S., uh, a recent study looked at changes in um, the how common it is for people to have these cervical changes that are most closely related to cervical um, cancer, um, so uh, CIN2 being the main one. And what that study showed was that the proportion of people who have received the vaccine and develop CIN2 has decreased from about 55% uh, to about 30%. In people who have not received the vaccine, the number who go on to develop um, those changes is has not changed nearly as much. It's only changed from about 55% um, to about 47%. So we've seen a huge reduction in the types of cervical lesions that precede cancer um, in this country um, with our current vaccination rates. Do you think, and this is a little bit of speculation, but do you think that some of the drop in the unvaccinated group could be because their partners were getting immunized? Absolutely. I definitely think that some of the changes that we've seen is due essentially to sort of herd immunity. So even though um, everyone may not be getting vaccinated, other individuals will benefit um, from potentially having sexual partners who have been vaccinated who are much less likely to have acquired the uh, infection. Mm -hmm. I think. It's important that you you talked about the recommendations for giving the vaccine and you didn't say that it was just for women or men, that it's both. And I think sometimes when parents hear that this is a vaccine that prevents cervical cancer for their sons, they think, well, why do I care about cervical cancer? But this is exactly why, right? So if we immunize the boys, we're going to help prevent the women as well. And there are complications for men. Absolutely. It's important for um, all individuals um, who may be involved in sexual relationships to get vaccinated. And so we need to, to vaccinate both our males and females. I may be asking you to predict the future a little bit with this question, but as HPV vaccination rates increase in our country, do mm -hmm. you think that ACOG may down the road change the screening guidelines where maybe women wouldn't need pap smears as frequently? I think that we are probably already moving in the direction of screening less frequently. I think that as we continue to gather information about the trade-offs for screening, um, we will continue to adjust our guidelines accordingly. And similarly, as we see that the level of disease is lower, um, we have to critically think about whether screening as often mm -hmm. um, is as helpful because if the prevalence goes down but right. you don't change the number of people um, screened, you may be um, having either false positives or subjecting more people um, to having procedures like biopsies, leaps, and colposcopies who are unlikely to go on to have the conditions we're trying to prevent. Right. And as you mentioned, screening is something that 
brings with it its own stress. Even if your results are normal, people are waiting for results on a cancer test every few years. Absolutely. And so they have lots of anxiety related to that. So that's an excellent point that it's not just about the physical symptoms that may go along with our screening test, um, but also about the psychological worries and concerns. Mm -hmm. So some parents worry that giving the HPV vaccine to their child will lead to early or more sexual activity. I hear this a lot in clinic. Is there any evidence that this is true? There is no evidence that giving the HPV vaccine causes young people to either have sex earlier or sooner than they may have otherwise, or that it causes them to change the number of partners that they um, have. There is, however, great evidence that shows that giving the vaccine is not associated with any of those things. And so I think that that data can really, that our primary care providers can use that data to feel more comfortable about making the recommendation to parents and reassuring them about those concerns. Mm -hmm. So since this is a sexually transmitted infection, why are we talking to parents at ages 9, 10, 11, 12 about a sexually transmitted infection vaccine? So we talk about the HPV vaccine for young people who are in an age group where they're unlikely to have already had sex because we want to get them vaccinated before that time. When I talk to um, parents about the vaccine, I remind them that we commonly vaccinate before exposure. So we want, for example, to give people the flu shot before they're exposed to the flu. Mm -hmm. We give infants the hepatitis B shot uh, vaccine long before they are presumably exposed. And sexual activity is one of the ways that they could be exposed to that. The idea is for prevention to work, we have to give the vaccines prior to exposure. Mm -hmm. And does the immune system respond differently when you're giving the vaccine to young adolescents versus older adolescents? The immune system does respond very differently in younger individuals compared to older individuals. Um, so if you give it at age nine, people's immune system will respond more robustly compared to if you give it, for example, at age 25. So that is also a big part of our guidelines. Mm -hmm. And that's why you give two shots versus three shots if you're giving the series before age 15. That's correct. So a nine-year-old will have a much stronger immune response and only needs two shots, whereas just a few years makes a difference. If you give it at or after age 15, you need to give three doses of the vaccine to have a similar immune response. I find that my patients are convinced to do the shot a little <laughs> earlier than they might otherwise when I tell them they only need two versus three if they wait till their next checkups. So. Indeed. <laughs> so when you're seeing patients here at Chapman the Adolescent Clinic, how do you talk to parents and young teens about the HPV vaccine to overcome some of the hesitancy and myths that are out there in the community that make people more hesitant to get this vaccine? That's a great question. How do you bring up the topic of the HPV vaccine with families? I always will start by asking if a family has already gotten the HPV vaccine, and if so, I give a positive affirmation and a reminder for why it's important. If someone hasn't, I always invite um, discussion about what their rationale is as a starting point for discussion. If what I hear are concerns that aren't supported by the data, such as they don't need it, they haven't started having sex yet, or they're too young, then I share with them the evidence that we've just talked about. Why we give it young, uh, because the immune system responds better, 
and that we want to give it before exposure. If families have concerns about the safety of the vaccine, then I address those concerns as well. I think the important thing is to meet families where they are, so understanding their concerns, allaying them, and also giving them the time to ask any questions or for clarification, but also just reinforcing the fact that it's recommended, very important, highly effective, with low risk. And so I think if we emphasize those messages for families consistently, similar to what we do for other vaccines, um, that we're doing a good job. And with that, we follow the AAP's recommendation of same day, same way. So when you're giving it with Tdap or Minactra or other vaccines that adolescents are getting, you say, you know, these are the shots that your child is due for, grouping them together and not separating HPV out as an outlier just because it's not required for schools. Mm -hmm. Some people would use, you know, use language that suggested that some were required, some weren't, but we should talk about them all together because they're all important. Absolutely. I think that last point is the critical one. They're all important for your child's health and they should be recommended in that way. Right. So if we wanted to send a patient to you, tell us where we can find you and also some of the other things that you're doing at CHOP. I know that uh, here we have your site, parentsaretalking.com, on our visit summaries, but people uh, who aren't at CHOP can also find that on the internet. So just tell us a little bit about both of those things. Sure. So if you want to send a patient to see me, I see patients in the Adolescent Specialty Care Clinic, which is located at 3550 Market Street on the fifth floor. To schedule an appointment, you can call our clinic at 215-590-3537. In terms of other things that um, we have going on here at CHOP, thank you for the question. Um, I also sit at the Policy Lab at CHOP, which is one of the research centers in CHOP's Pediatric Research Institute. Policy Lab is focused on improving the health of young people by linking new research evidence to policy change in a way um, that improves uh, access to and outcomes from care. One of the things our team has worked on over the last three years in collaboration with a number of different groups at CHOP, including the Family Advisory Council, is developing a website um, called parentsaretalking.com. And that website is really designed to help provide parental caregivers with information about sexual and reproductive health um, services and conditions um, that are relevant to young people um, during the pubertal years, so between the ages of 9 and 18. It provides factual information but also tips about talking um, as well as um, stories from experts, from young people and families about talking with young people about um, different conditions. We also uh, currently are working in collaboration with some gaming students locally and developing some games that parents and young people can play to make talking about these types of topics a lot more fun and exciting. That's really exciting and fun to think that you're kind of changing the way people have the birds and the bees talk exactly. with facts, but also making it interactive and fun for them. Absolutely. Facts with fun. That's our goal. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and talking about HPV today. And we will link to some of the things that you mentioned on our website, which is www.chop.edu slash pcppodcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash pcppodcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.